Margin Call is the podcast that gives you behind-the-scenes access to the ups and downs of working in the Forex CFD industry. We interview the people that keep the show on the road, giving you insight into what makes the industry tick. The series is guest-hosted by myself, Jordan Michaelides, and produced by the team at Neural Media. To learn more, visit gomarkets.com slash podcast. That's G-O-M-A-R-K-E-T-S dot com slash podcast. Or take a look at the Go Market suite of products at gomarkets.com. Go Markets is a derivatives broker and Jordan Michaelides is the managing director of Neural Media. All opinions expressed by Jordan and podcast guests are solely their own and do not reflect the opinions of Go Markets, an AFSL license holder. This podcast is for informational purposes only and should not be relied upon as a basis for financial decisions nor as an indication of future performance. Clients of Go Markets may hold positions in the derivatives mentioned. A financial services guide and product disclosure statement for our products are available at gomarkets.com. My guests this week is Roger Montgomery, founder and CIO of Montgomery Investment Management and author of Valueable. Uh, he's currently on holidays, so I feel uh, somewhat privileged to be pulling him away. Uh, how's the the isolation going or has it been since we started doing this to and fro in, in, in March? Oh, for me, I, you know, my family, we, we're very fortunate. We've en- enjoyed being together and... Um, you know, we're, we're privileged to live in a great suburb in Sydney and um, there's been, you know, there's, there hasn't been really a lot of the negative issues that are associated with being locked down for many people who are in smaller apartments or, or um, in difficult relationships, you know, so mm. it's been relatively straightforward. Yeah. I'm and- amazed at how seamlessly everyone has been able to work and be productive even though, the circumstances have changed so fundamentally. Yeah, well, I know I, I would agree with that. I think um, I'm in a similar scenario in Melbourne. Uh, I think in the first wave in that first lockdown, we we felt the same that people were actually, unless you're really in a hotspot area, uh, people were able to sort of roll with the punches. And mm. that would have, that could have been cafe owner cafe owners. You know, I, I go to my little local cafe always, Bedge Good and Co, around the corner, and. This time around, though, I've noticed a complete shift. I've noticed maybe it's just a mental thing, but I think that there's also the economics underpinning it as well. Things aren't being restocked the way they were previously at cafes. You know, you mm-hmm. can't buy this or that thing because they've reduced the line of products or services down. Mm-hmm. Um, even at your little local grocer, we've noticed that as well. So it's been very. I think like uh, Melbourne has had a snapshot as to what maybe the rest of the country may see. Mm if uh, you do go into lockdown again? Well, my view is that we will in Sydney. We're only a few weeks behind um, Melbourne. Mm. Um, we had that incident in a in a in, sort of an interstate highway pub um, and it was only a few days ago that the New South Wales State Government was still asking people who were at that pub from the 4th of July uh, to self-isolate. Now, if they haven't self-isolated until now, mm. uh, that's roughly two weeks of virus right. spread. <laughs> uh, and so I think we're only a couple of weeks behind Melbourne and we're potentially going into lockdown again. Now, I know that our Premier has said, Gladys Berejiklian has said she'll refrain from locking down if possible, but 
all you see is they end up being forced to do it. They don't want to do it. They delay it. And that makes it worse. And then they're forced to. And it's not just in Australia. We're seeing it in the United States, everywhere mm. outside of the tri-state area, you know, which is Connecticut, New York and New Jersey. You're seeing case rates explode. Um, infection rates are very high. Uh, we get to the point where beds are, are full again in hospitals and and you have, you have a, a rolling crisis. We don't have a financial crisis at the moment, which is good, yeah. but we definitely have a health crisis and we definitely have an economic crisis. Do you, uh, yeah, America's a fascinating one. It makes me realise this, in particular the last six months, how much I, I am so grateful that my, that my uh, immigrant ancestors two generations ago decided to come to this country and not America. Accidents of the womb, I call it. I, yeah. You didn't because get to choose who you came out of. You really, really don't. And uh, it's been highlighted to me over the last six months. It is it is quite amazing to see their reaction over there and just the, um, I guess, the denial mm. uh, of what is actually happening. I, I, I was always intrigued chatting to guests recently around when this initial insight of the coronavirus came to them, when sure. it sort of hit them that... Uh, the reality of the situation. I know that for a lot of us in finance, you would be paying attention anyway. I think I first learned about it in the first weeks of January. Uh, when did you realize that this was very serious? Uh, we were dealing not quite early January. Early January, we were on, a, on our um, property in Victoria uh, worried about bushfires. So we weren't thinking about coronavirus at all. I know. Yeah. We then hopped on a plane uh, to Japan and my family and I were skiing over there. But we came back on the 26th of January and we were wearing masks on the plane on the way home and we were wearing masks at Tokyo Airport and in Sydney Airport. We were the only Aussies to do so. Um, but, but I insisted that my family wear masks because we just didn't know the pathology of the virus. We still don't. When we got back to the office in at the start of February, uh, my team had already commenced uh, and particularly the small cap team had commenced uh, a, a global project to track not only infection rates and uh, death rates, but to track testing rates. And that's really important because if you don't test, you don't find. And what was really shocking is when we collated the data from the CDC in the United States as well as the private pathology labs, we found that all through January, the US, remember they've got a population of between 330 yeah. and 340 million people. They were testing 40 people per day in yeah, January. I, know, I remember this. And in February, they were testing an average of 92 people per day. And in February is when it left Wuhan. In February, it was already well entrenched in uh, Korea, South Korea, and uh, it was spreading to Italy. Uh, and we could see very early that, you know, knowing, of course, that the US markets are the, are the dog that wags everyone else's tail, um, we knew that if the US uh, wasn't testing, they were allowing the virus to spread, it would be a shock once they ramped up testing and that there would be a correction in the stock market so we moved to very, very significant levels of cash. Uh, in our small cap fund, we went to 40% cash. In our larger cap domestic funds, we moved to about 35, 30 to 35% cash. 
uh, and that really helped us navigate that that initial sell-off really well. Yeah, and do, I mean that that's one of the biggest things that we've spoken about with with the team around the production of this podcast is opportunity because you know we're speaking really to a generation that their real income hasn't very much increased in the last five to seven years, and so opportunity has been something of the forefront on this demographic, particularly most millennials. And I found it very interesting that period, uh, just for me personally investing. I think when that market, uh, I don't know what it originally came down to. I had to hear something like 30 to 35% was um, was the low from the top. Uh, and there were some amazing opportunities there, but there was still a lot of overpriced companies relative to cash flows. Sure. Um, how did you guys see that period? Did you t- take that as an opportunistic moment? So in the small companies fund, yes. Uh, we went from at pretty much coinciding with the lows and that was not because we predicted it was the low. We just felt that it got to the point where it was cheap enough. Uh, and in our small companies fund, we moved from 40% cash, which I talked to you about earlier, uh, we moved to 10% cash. Wow. So we invested 30% of the fund uh, just towards the end of March. That's made the Small Companies Fund, since its inception now, the number one small companies fund in the country because um, we've done that so well. Uh, and Gary Rollo and Dominic Rose, who run that fund, have just done an extraordinary job of navigating both the sell-off and the subsequent rally. In the larger domestic funds, we, we put some cash to work, but we remain relatively conservative there. So we've still got about 20% cash in that fund. That meant that we haven't rallied with the market as the market has rallied. We haven't captured all of that upside. And that's okay because we don't think it's sustainable. Um, We actually think we're probably going to have another leg, uh, another leg down in markets um, for a variety of reasons. But primarily, I've seen it many, many times. Next year, I'll, I'll, I'll mark my 30th year in markets. Mm. Uh, since graduating from university, I started as an equities analyst first year out. And um, uh, what I can tell you is that I've seen this a number of times before where you get a lot of money concentrated in a very, very narrow band of stocks and it can only go on so long. And so that at the moment is technology stocks, it's SaaS, so software as a service, it's Tesla, NVIDIA, Microsoft, you know, the... Mm. um, Google, Apple, Amazon, and Facebook. So at the moment, the S&P 500, since the start of the year, since the 1st of January, is down 1.3%. But if you take out those six tech stocks that I mentioned, then uh, it's down about 10.5%. And if you look at the MSCI, the global index, stock market index that covers the whole globe, and you remove the US, which obviously is being supported by those tech stocks, if you remove the US, the global market's gone nowhere in five years or six years, mm. absolutely nowhere. So you talk about income for your, you know, for, for millennials and, and how their income hasn't gone up over the years. Well, you know, for a lot of retirees who are invested in stock markets around the world, they haven't done particularly well yeah. either. Yeah, I mean, I, I had this conversation with my in-laws recently yeah. it's just you're sort of stuck you're in a really and you know you consider someone like them that during this whole uh you know economic crisis no one can really travel and they own a property which they predominantly rent out via airbnb yeah 
Yeah. And so they are, they are in that key demographic of people who's been affected. But going back to your point, it's really interesting to see the demographics on retail versus institutional trading and yeah. being in or out of the market in the last six months. Um, I saw a chart the other day. I not. I can't remember who um, had collated the data, but it was just very interesting to see that during the sell-off and the recent buy-up, uh, a lot of it was retail trading. Yes, and it's it's had me thinking because you know I Let just me give you some numbers on that. Really? Uh, yeah. So from the peak at the end of February to the low at the end of March, that thirty-six percent sell-off in one month or thereabouts. Um, $9 billion was invested by retail investors yeah. um, and $11 billion was sold uh, by institutional By institutional, investors. yeah. 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 So, you know, that, that and, and the institutions haven't bought back in as seriously as retail investors. So mm. a, lot of the, a lot of the rally that we're seeing in stocks um, is, is extended. It's also supported by institutions, but it's extended by that retail element. Mm. Um, and, and it scares me because a lot of people who are investing in the market today have never invested in the market before. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, uh, you know, they're stuck at home. Um, the casino is closed. Uh, they, um, they can't bet on sporting events because there aren't many. Uh, and, um, and, you know, so they've only got Tats Lotto and, and uh, Powerball and the stock market. Yeah. Uh, and they're treating it pretty much the same way. And the reason why I say that with some... Confidence is because you know there are companies like J.C. Penney that have gone into bankruptcy and Hertz that have gone into yeah, bankruptcy, yeah. <laughs> and their stocks have rallied since they announced their bankruptcy, mm. which is insane because in the capital structure of a company, if you own the equity, you're the owner, you're the last one to be paid back in a winding up. So the secured creditors get paid first, then the unsecured creditors and the staff, and then if there's anything left, that's what the equity holders get. Yeah. So the equity is worth zero, and yet Hertz shares went up fivefold after it announced bankruptcy. Yeah. Um, I remember seeing this on. Uh, so one of my favourite reb uh, subreddits to get an insight into the, let's call them the prosumer trader, uh-huh. um, is Wall Street Bets, and this is this is something I've been thinking a lot about recently because I just read Howard Marks' uh, he, his most recent book. And he talks about like never knowing where the next bubble is, but knowing that there, of course, will always be one. Mm. But sometimes you have a sense. And I I feel like, I feel like options is the thing that not a lot of people in institutional markets uh, talk about unless they're really trading options on a day to day basis. They're not talking about it in government. So the governments don't really have an idea. Uh, the bankers who are who are dealing with retail banking and corporate consumer banking don't really have an idea. It's only the people who are in these specific areas. And I just look at the behavior and I, I feel like it's somewhat similar to the behavior you saw with CDOs back in 2008-9. Now, how, how much bigger is that synthetic market in options to the actual market? I don't know. Um, yeah, I don't think we, I think what you're alluding to is, you know, whether or not we have a structured product issue yeah. uh, on bank balance sheets, which would then result in a financial crisis. Um, we don't. Yeah. Uh, not this time around. CLOs, um, uh, collateralized loan obligations, which are 
um, basically uh, synthesized or, or structured products backed by corporate loans. That's not the issue. The issue today is an economic issue. Mm. The issue for banks globally is the extent of their balance sheet that has been uh, lent to small and medium enterprises. So it's not mortgages that are the issue. It's not uh, it's not CLOs or options or credit default swaps or anything like that. Um, it's just a, it's a more macroeconomic issue this time around. Mm. Um, you've got you talked about the cafe that's not stocking the same line of you know they probably don't have the vanilla slice and they don't have the yeah, caramel yeah. slice. You know you can't get the the the, the date protein ball. Um, you know there's they're the ones who are struggling. It's the it's the loans to those enterprises that are going to um, hit the banks, if anything at all. Mm. Yeah, I, th- I think you're really right. I think uh, that that makes a lot of sense. And their ability to get uh, commercial debt at that lower level is going to be harder and harder, um, particularly if you're in a, a type of industry which relies on those funding cycles, the short-term funding cycles. Um, you know, I even think about someone like my father who runs a manufacturing business and their sales of they're down like 40, 50% and they haven't really recovered uh, since probably February. Mm. So I think, um, yeah, you, you're going to see it in, in and amongst that supply chain um, that you're talking about. The, the Australian economy, uh, there's a lot of data that's come out recently. I don't, um, I don't have the recent update on the employment data uh, I did hear Josh Frydenberg talking about the fact that he expects the real unemployment rate to be about 13%. I think it was uh, last listed at 7.4% right. the other day. Yep. Yep, that was yesterday. Yeah. So, house, we know household savings are up. It seems like a lifetime that the Royal Commission happened. And like you said, the bushfires. It just seems so bizarre, like in the financial sector, that the Royal Commission was a thing that happened and now it feels like none of that is in the forefront at all anymore, any of the practices that happen or anything like that. Well, like um, I said, we're in, a, you know, we're in a, a health crisis and an economic crisis, so that's, that's <laughs> going to lead, lead the news flow. Yeah. It, it was interesting reading, I don't know if you read that McKinsey report, I think uh, it was called something like uh, the lucky country, the not so lucky country or uh, the lucky country something. It had some sort of name to it around the lucky country and it was talking about the fact that retail sentiment is obviously down but when you interview individuals they say they're going to be fine in their scenario but they think the economy by and large is stuffed yeah Um, that's in the context of people receiving government grants yes yeah how how do you see uh i guess the headwinds and tailwinds in the economy over the next let's let's just say the next six to twelve months i'm not looking for a soundbite i'm just looking for your sense as to where things may or may not go in terms of probabilities it it all comes down to one very very simple thing and that is the definition of recovery Mm. what is a recovery so if the recovery is anything off the mat so imagine a boxing ring and two fighters going at it and one's been knocked out uh that's that's the economy and the stock market back in march right? Uh, now the guy has got off the mat and he's leaning on one knee and he's got his head in his hands and he's, you know, being counted down by the ref 
um, or the umpire, and, and um, uh, that's recovery for the stock market. That's mm. better than the bottom. That's better than being knocked out. Yeah. But and the the stock market's really excited about that. But for the real man in the street and woman in the street, um, recovery is going back to your 2019 level of income. Mm. You know, now that is a long way away. So the tension that you've got between the stock market and the economy is that definition of recovery. Uh, and uh, we've seen uh, Glenn Stevens, uh, we've former RBA governor. We've seen, uh, sorry, uh, RBA governor. We've seen our former treasurer Peter Costello. Uh, they've all they've all pointed out that it's going to be a very long, bumpy, halting process to get back to full employment, to get back to previous levels of income. Mm. Um, my concern for stock market investors, particularly many of your listeners uh, and viewers who have made a lot of money in the market in a very short space of time, uh, they, you know, at some point the market will give up on the prospect of an easy and quick recovery and will start to price in the prospect of a much more difficult and, and bumpy recovery. Mm. Uh, Helen, just in addition to that, Helen Clark, the former uh, Prime Minister of New Zealand, who's now leading the investigation into China's role in the spread of the virus for the World Health Organization, uh, she said uh, that a vaccine is unlikely within two and a half years mm. and a widely distributed vaccine. So the only way we're ever going back to normal is if we have a vaccine and in the absence of that vaccine for two and a half years, we're just going to have lots of fits and starts. There's going to be lots of false dawns and the market's going to be very, very volatile. Yeah, so it's it's really riding on the fact that we, we need a vaccine. Yeah. Um, look, the only saving grace is that we've got uh, very low interest rates at the moment mm. and governments are willing to put a lot of money, willing to basically um, burden themselves with enormous amounts of debt uh, to just support the economy. Now, none of their actions are stimulatory. They're not stimulating the economy in any way. Yeah. Uh, they are merely supporting it uh, and stopping it from dropping over a cliff edge. Um, so you've got to keep that in mind. Uh, but they're willing to do it at, at size uh, mm. and in scale. Uh, and then central banks are willing, obviously, uh, to buy pretty much every asset. <laughs> um, <laughs> Start you know, picking winners and losers. In the United States. Yeah. Uh, so central banks are willing to do that. So that will keep interest rates cheap. The only concern is that none of these actions bring new customers to businesses or, you know, I, I, when I talk about businesses, I divide them up in my mind between bricks and clicks. You know, there are the click type businesses and then mm. there are the brick businesses. But the brick businesses aren't getting new customers uh, and they're not, they're not the, the actions of central banks by lowering interest rates or buying bonds to keep long-term interest rates low, they're not bringing revenue for those businesses. So we're going to see more bankruptcies. And there are a lot of people who are currently on JobKeeper in Australia who won't go back to a job. I had a friend of mine no. from university here at my house a few weeks ago. She's looking to buy one of the retailers that's gone into voluntary administration being managed by Deloitte at the moment. That chain of women's fashion stores has 135 stores or had 135 stores. She's looking to buy the brand 
the inventory. Um, she'll close down the factory and put the inventory in one of the bigger stores. But out of those 135 stores, she only wants to manage 35. Yeah. So 100 of those stores have gone for good. And all those, st- all those staff that, that are currently on JobKeeper that thought they would go back to a job, they're not going back to a job. Yeah. I think September is going to be very interesting. Well, the government's already announced changes to JobKeeper and it's already announced that it's going to extend it in some form or another. Yeah. Uh, so, so there'll be less money, it'll be more targeted, but there'll still be support. Yeah, but I, I, don't, I don't know if it'll be enough. I mean, look, here in, here in Victoria, in, in our creative agency, which I think is really where you get a sense of behavior in businesses because things often start in marketing. Um, and you can particularly see it in paid media buys. Um, oh yeah, that's that's cactus. It's yeah, it's absolutely destroyed. I, I saw some interesting stat on Mumbrella the other day that TV ad sales are down something like forty five percent, which is the biggest uh, chunk of paid media in the industry. Um, but you notice it as well with creative projects. People are just, you know, like I think pre. Uh, let's say pre-COVID Jan, Feb period, uh, we would have leads and, and calls and opportunities coming through every single day. And I, I think this week in particular, I noticed that we had maybe one contact in the last week, which to me was mind-blowing. Now, we're f- fine as a company, but to know what the future pipeline looks like and thinking that come September as well, uh, JobKeeper in some form is going to change dramatically. I don't know that. At least here, I feel like at least here in Victoria, um, this second lockdown will have broken of uh, f- far too many people. I think. Yeah, yeah. It's um, as I say, it's the market is. You know, it's 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 easy to summarise. The market is voting, and the, the the record levels that we're seeing in the stock market is it's voting for a fast and quick, fast and easy recovery. Yeah, that's not um, gonna happen. but the reality is slow and halting, and so yeah, that dichotomy uh, is it represents the tension between the economy and the and the stock market. And usually, in recessions, the stock market does pretty poorly. Mm. Uh, so you know that's yet to that's yet to play out. Do you do you think personally that you know we we see a lot of this news around the vaccine? Do you personally believe that a vaccine will be possible? I'm just this is a conversation I had last night with my partner around the Spanish flu and how really back then the lack of knowledge meant that political leaders could just let a disease like that go through the population. But now we live in such a scientific world that you can't, you don't really have that option to let it naturally take its course through the population. And you have to wait for something like a, uh, a lock. You have to use something like a lockdown, a therapeutic, or a vaccine. Yeah, I think I think a treatment is more likely than a vaccine. Um, but I'm not an expert. I'm only mm. I can only share with you what I've been reading and what I've been seeing. Uh, and uh, it strikes me that there are currently 180 uh, COVID coronavirus uh, projects underway. Uh, there are 15 in clinical trials at the moment. So there's a lot of hope that a vaccine will be developed soon. But you've got to balance that hope against the realisation that there's never been a vaccine for a coronavirus. Yeah. 
So never you know, say never. Though. Maybe this time, maybe this time we crack it, and we crack it for all future coronaviruses too. Mm. But uh, you know, that's a pretty optimistic outlook. There, at the start of this, there was a. I mean, there's the geopolitical tensions with China, which have been, uh, I think, like a lot of things that have happened during this uh, coronavirus, uh, let's call it recession, crisis, um, it's accelerated things that were probably already going to happen anyway, um, at least in the short term. Um, We know uh, China, their GDP has been decimated. There's the talk, there was the talk here a while ago that uh, basically, we would move a lot of our production or there was the emphasis on moving more and more production outside of places like China. Um, I think from memory about a month before things really kicked off, it must've been around January. I think uh, Woodside, Rio Tinto and a few other large Australian corporations went over with the foreign ministry for an event in Vietnam. And they were talking around, supply chains and manufacturing and all this sort of stuff that you could sort of see that maybe they're going to start shifting that production and that supply chain to somewhere like Vietnam, as opposed to just investing in it back home in Australia. Do you think there's any merit to the, to the idea that supply chains will be brought back uh, here and be more localized? Or do you think it's more likely that it'll just be moved to another price-efficient economy. Yeah, well, it all comes down to wages. So Mm. um, your wages in Australia are very, very high uh, relative to other um, manufacturing opportunities. Uh, And so uh, for as long as that remains the case, I think many companies who are seeking to maximise profits will look for the cheapest possible way outside of China for obvious reasons. Um, to manufacture their product. Uh, And so we'll see a huge shift in supply chains. Um, We don't have access to Eastern European workers on low wages like Europe does. Mm. We don't have access to uh, South American cheap labour like the United States does. You know, so we don't have that competitive advantage. Uh, So we have to be smarter about what we build and what we make we definitely have to add value to our exports. We can't just keep shipping raw materials off and importing highly finished goods. Uh, it takes about seven seven tonnes of iron ore export to afford one iPhone yeah. um, in Australia. So you can't keep doing that forever. Uh, so we've got to add value to our exports. Uh, that means they have to be at higher price points. They have to be value added because our, our salaries are high. Um, But, of course, if we want to defend democracy uh, and we believe that democracy uh, is superior for individuals and their freedoms than a totalitarian regime or or any other dictatorship, um, then, you know, we've got to realise that we can't rely on one country uh, to support our economic prosperity. We have to diversify our supply chains and Mm. our manufacturing. Do you, if you were, this is something I've been asking a lot of guests, if you were made treasurer for a year overnight, Hmm. what would the first 60, 90 days look like for you? Oh, the first thing that I would do is I would set up, uh, I would commission or or, uh, I would ask uh, all of my um, staff uh, to work on a tax scheme 
that offered genuine startup businesses a tax holiday for three years for the first two hundred or $300,000 profit. They pay no tax for three years. Mm. Um, and the reason I would do that uh, is because it would give the market economy an opportunity to work out what we're very good at. Uh, and I would specify it has to be exportable and, you know, we have to be able to generate uh, foreign revenue uh, from it uh, and that you would get a holiday. If you were setting up a startup uh, and it was specifically to add value to an export um, or if it was a value-added export, then you'd get a tax holiday on the first, call it $300,000 profit every year for the first three years. Mm. And you would see a lot of startups. You would see a lot of things being tried uh, that hadn't been tried before. And the reason why I say that's important is because we've got a current account deficit. The reason why we have a current account deficit is because we spend more on our imports than we earn from our exports for the reasons I articulated yeah. earlier with the iron ore and the iPhone. And because we're spending more on our imports than we earn from our exports, the difference that we can't afford we have to either borrow from overseas lenders or we have to sell our property, our businesses and our farms to overseas buyers. So effectively what we're doing, and, and you, you listen to the government talk about that and they'll say, well, yes, we need foreign investment in Australia, Roger, because uh, foreign investment brings in uh, intellectual property, it brings in technology mm. uh, and we get to benefit from that. Well, yeah, we could benefit if we owned it too. Yeah. And, uh, you know, we, we don't have to sell our farm in order to get that. But that's what's happening in Australia. And so if we had a way to actually add value to our exports so we had a capital account, a current account surplus, so we were earning more from our exports than we were paying for our imports, we'd be a very, very rich nation. And the excess money that we earned, we could go overseas and acquire businesses and acquire that technology. Mm. Not only would we benefit from it, but we would own it. Yeah, um, and that's that's and the the first step is that tax holiday for startups. So that's what, my first ninety days as a treasurer. Why do you think no one has ever created something like that? that I, I I agree with you. There's always been this meme that we need to that that external investment is absolutely crucial to Australia's survival. Yeah, they say that to you because uh, they don't want to tell you the truth which is you're spending too much and you need to rein your belt in on your imports. Stop buying new iPhones and let us sell some more iron ore mm. and, that's, and let us sell some more live cattle and some more live sheep. You know, we don't add any value. Let's send our, you know, live lobster over there. Let's not finish it here and sell it for a higher price. We just sell the raw material and we bring in iPhones and, yeah. uh, and it, it, it's not sustainable and eventually eventually what happens is somebody says, you know what, I don't trust your IOU. I don't like your bonds anymore. I want to own all your land and you can work for me. And mm. that's what happens if you keep doing it for hundreds of years. It fails. Uh, and so we have to change what we're doing. The reason it, you ask the question, why hasn't anyone done it before? Well, they have. In the US, they have a scheme like this uh, where they give tax holidays to startups. In Singapore, they have it. In yeah. Israel, they have it. In Turkey, they have it. In Britain, they have it. For some reason, we can't get our heads around it in Australia. Mm. It's a good one. It's a good idea. I've, I've always thought there's something to be done there around the balance of, uh, not so much balance of payments, but the, the current account. Um, 
I've I've had I have a friend who works in sort of the uh, the liquor wholesale business, and he's also got a uh, an import license. And he said it's it's a massive issue the the cost of shipping in Australia for exports versus imports, and simply because going back to what you said, it takes more ships to move the stuff out of here than bring stuff here locally. Um, because you know they've condensed something through a value-added process and made it a usable product. Well, there's certainly more value per ship coming in than more yes. value going out. That's right. E- exactly. All right, we're going to jump into some quick rapid-fire questions to finish you off. Okay. First one, best purchase under $200 during this whole ISO period. Something that's helped you. Uh, you could have bought it beforehand, but something that you've really enjoyed during this Red entire wine. period. Red wine? Yeah. <laughs> any any wine of choice? The the pirate from Western Australia. Be the pirate from Western Australia. The pirate. Yep. Okay. Uh what's your morning and evening routine looks like? Uh exercise every morning. Um so uh uh body weight workout, uh high intensity workout followed by a, a training bike session. Uh and that and every evening I spend it with my family, with the kids. Okay. Have you, if you could pick like a, a movie, doco, or show that you've been watching recently, what would uh, what would be the pick of the bunch? Uh, two uh, Morning Wars, I thought was brilliant. Yeah, this is on Apple TV, right? Yeah, it's the first time I've. I mean, I'm going to show my age here, but it's the first time <laughs> I've watched a series of shows from the start to the finish. Really? Um, yeah, I've never, never. I don't have much time for TV, so. Uh, that was the first one I, I saw start to finish, and I really enjoyed it. And the one we're watching now is Big Little Lies, um, okay. which is which is written by a uh, a local school. The book was written by a local school mum, mm-hmm. uh, and they've uh, Reese Witherspoon's in it, Meryl Streep, uh, and Nicole Kidman, uh, and that is uh, is quite spectacular too. Yeah, a lot of people have referenced this and. Um I remember seeing the clip and it looked uh, on the trailer and it looked intense, but um, I have to go check it out. What do you know? What platform? What platform is Big Little uh, Lies? Apple. On? That one's on Apple. It's still on Apple. Okay. Yeah, it's still yeah. on Apple. Um, yeah, Morning I watched. Wars, Morning Wars, I think, was uh, Netflix. Okay, Apple TV. I think next year is really going to come out with a bang because I just watched The Greyhound with uh, Tom Hanks, which is now available on Apple yep. TV. Yep. Yeah, obviously. Uh, yeah, it's it's a brilliant movie, but I think is what's even more brilliant is the uh, the install rate of Apple TV Plus. You mm. know, like they basically just give it out. They're going to have some amazing recurring revenue come a year or so from yeah, now. Yeah, we, we signed up immediately. It was available seven dollars ninety nine a month. Um, you know, it's uh, it's great. But when you buy a new device now, they just give it to you for a year for free. Oh, okay, there you go. Yeah. Well, I bought a phone and I got it and then uh, we bought a, a few new laptops for the business for staff and it's like, okay, everyone gets Apple TV plus now. Cool. Um, all right. Last question for you. Is there anything in particular, anything big that you've really changed your mind about during this whole lockdown period An aha moment, so to speak? No, I think I already, look, with respect to work and investing, um, you know, the three decades that I've been doing this has given me a pretty clear idea about timing and pricing and knowing when to invest. There was a just a standout opportunity during this crisis to make a lot of money very quickly uh, without 
without much, you really didn't have to know a lot. And that's when oil went negative. Yeah. Um, that was so obvious. Uh, and uh, I, I bought a lot of oil. I had friends ringing me asking what to do. I said, empty your pool and fill it with petrol. You'll do just fine. Um, uh, and my son, uh, he bought some oil, told all his friends. And then I was at a 50th birthday party recently and I had people patting, I'd, people I didn't really know had bought oil and they were patting me on the back saying, thanks for the oil trade. Because um, my kids had, my kids had told their kids and their kids had told them and they'd all done it as well. I'm pleased it worked out. But yeah. it was a pretty easy and obvious one. So yeah, what that- I've learned, you know, I, I don't know whether I've changed my mind on something, but what I've learned is that it's reinforced the idea that through your life, and this is probably really important for your audience, through your life, that if you if you study really hard, in, study investing really hard, you will still find that there's probably in a lifetime maybe half a dozen to a dozen opportunities that really, really stand out that are really so obvious that it really it's a, it slaps you in the face it's so obvious yeah you know when the aussie dollar was at a dollar 10 that was one we 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 put all our cash into us dollars and singapore dollars um, yeah the rba coming out saying the aussie dollar is uncompetitive uh, we've got to bring it down if you have got your central bank saying that you just know it's time to short the aussie dollar and buy <laughs> other currencies yeah yeah when oil goes negative how long can oil stay negative for that's almost an impossibility um uh so and it never happened before so that again was another very very obvious opportunity so you get these dozen to half dozen opportunities through your life if you do nothing in between those opportunities and just load up on those opportunities you'll be incredibly successful and i think just to add to that as a i've i would call myself a value investor as well when you have those moments sometimes it's actually really hard to take the moment and dive into it and yeah. back to your point about that us dollar at a dollar 10 i think it was 2016 there were there were unbelievable opportunities with apple and a few other large businesses that had amazing free cash flow and it i couldn't believe it and i still and i think for me it was certain people certain markers talking about it um yourself i remember when buffett made the investment and it sort of, and that was a week after I'd made it in Apple, and that reaffirmed my belief. And uh, we wrote about Apple at the time. You can go back and have a look at the blog posts. Yeah, yeah. Um, that was an amazing, amazing trade. Um, just even for the the conversion. I mean, look, look at where the uh, the <laughs> the Aussie dollar was in hmm. Feb March. It's just hmm. uh, it's one of those opportunities. But um, look, Roger, thank you so much. I know you're on holiday, but um, thanks for joining us. Uh, where can people find you on the interwebs? We write we write uh, two blogs a day at rogermontgomery.com. That's probably the first place. And that's where you can also buy the book that I wrote, uh, Valuable, um, which, which talks about uh, the principles or the framework for investing uh, in the stock market. Uh, and I think the earlier you read that, uh, the better off you'll be. Yeah, I, w- I would second that motion as well. Um, We'll have all the links, of course, but um, Roger, thanks for joining. Great, Jordan. Good to talk to you. Thanks for listening to Margin Call. Before you run off, make sure you subscribe on your podcast app to get first access to new episodes and consider sharing this with a friend who loves the Forex CFD game. 
Don't forget to like us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, or YouTube by searching Go Markets. That's G O M A R K E T S. Until next time, thanks for listening.